Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, October the 12th, 2022. Longtime viewers, regular viewers of the show, listeners to the show know that I'm a big fan of Bob Dylan. Um, particularly his last and latest album. I'm guessing it's probably his last album, Rough, Rough and Rowdy Ways. In fact, I saw the tour both in New Orleans and in Santa Cruz this year. And of course, the song that everybody remembers from that album, although he didn't play it in his concerts, a Murder Most Foul, a wonderful song that I think got to number one, first time he's done it for a while. One of the lines that particularly are one of the series of lines that it's, it seems to be his last statement about music, influence, and all the madness that's associated with Dylan. Uh, he, he, he wrote and sang, play Bugsy Siegel, play Pretty Boy Floyd, play the numbers, play the odds, play Crimea River for the Lords of the Glods, play, play number nine, play number six, play it for Lindsay and Stevie Nicks. And he goes on to talk about Nat King Cole and Thelonious Monk and Charlie Parker and all that junk. Uh, what was particularly interesting and intriguing to me is that Dylan would have written about Stevie Nicks, um, who probably most people wouldn't expect would show up in one of Dylan's great songs. Stevie Nicks uh, is associated not just with Fleetwood Mac, but also as a very successful uh, solo artist. And I'm thrilled that we're talking Stevie Nicks today, not Bob Dylan. Uh, my guest is Simon Morrison, one of America's leading musicologists. He teaches at Princeton University. He's written extensively on uh, Russian music, Russian classical 20th century music, particularly Prokofiev. But he has a new book out, a UC, a UC California, a, U, a University of California press book, Mirror in the Sky, the life and music of Stevie Nicks. And uh, Simon is joining us from Princeton, New Jersey. Simon, why the book on Stevie Nicks? Are you a huge fan? Um, I was when I was a kid. I listened to a lot of Fleetwood Mac and I listened to some of her early uh, solo records. And I actually listened to a great deal of so-called popular music, uh, including Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and the people... Uh, they were referenced in that fantastic song by um, Dylan. And um, I, um, I guess this project was sort of, um, I don't know if it's a passion project, but it was something that um, I kind of wanted to do in University of California Press, you know, and talking about various projects. Um, this came up. And so I grabbed the opportunity and submitted a proposal. And I said, all right, let's do it. Let's, let's go for it and see what you come up with in terms of a study of uh, this person's life and career and rock and roll and um, her solo output. Uh, you describe her and uh, the, the book, it um, observes that she's one of um, the finest songwriters of the 20th century. What are the songs in particular, Simon, for you that capture the genius of Stevie Nicks? Um, well, a song that most people um, really admire, um, Landslide, which is a song that uh, she wrote when she was quite young. Um, I, I love uh, that song. I love Storms from Tusk. I think that's a wonderful song. I love Silver Springs. Dreams is iconic. Um, I actually like a lot of the uh, lesser known pieces on some of her solo records. Uh, the title track of Belladonna, I think, is a terrific song. 
Um, there are some pieces. Um, one of the themes that runs through this book is that there are a lot of songs of hers that um, just exist in demo form and never landed on albums. And I wondered why that was the case. So there's a, a song that I'm personally really, really fond of called Joan of Arc um, that exists in demo form and hopefully one day will be fully realized. Um, and uh, she recently uh, rescued some old tracks and redid them, tracks from all over her uh, long and distinguished career. And there's a song called 24 Karat Gold, uh, which came out about six years ago uh, that I really think is wonderful as well. Do you think in terms of her particular contribution and genius that her greatest achievements were with Fleetwood Mac or as a solo artist? Um, that's a good question. I would say that um, with Fleetwood Mac, she is a figure who was responsible for cultivating a certain sound that really um, defined the 70s in terms of FM radio and a suburban sound and kind of creating a kind of, you know, lava lamp dreamscape. Uh, that was the 70s. So when you listen to Rumors or Parts of Tusk, uh, which is a more experimental record, you actually have this kind of atmosphere or feeling that's generated. And it's, you know, you listen to Rumors and you, you, you kind of feel 1977. Of course, you know, 1977 wasn't uh, such a great time for a lot of people, but there's a sort of uh, fantasy that's generated and ambiance that captures that sort of spirit of that time. And so she's largely responsible for that because of the number one hit song from that record called Dreams. Um, later on though, um, I find that when she was on her own as a solo artist and she was working with various producers and interlocutors that um, she reached back more to her roots um, on one hand to the sort of country rock days that she grew up with mixed together with synth pop, which was dominant in the 80s. So I find that in the solo albums, you have her um, working through a lot more interesting sort of uh, musical problems, as well as the lyrics become more interesting. So it's less processed and polished and about creating this sort of 70s fantasy, obviously, in the 80s. And things actually become more about her um, sort of in dialogue with herself and in dialogue with herself with her fans, uh, if that makes any sense. So it's a little bit more intimate and a little bit more idiosyncratic. Simon, you mentioned Joni Mitchell. Um, of course, uh, another of the great masters or mistresses of American, or at least North American songwriting in the 20th century. We did a show uh, with my old friend Jonathan Tacklin. Um, he has a new book out, The Magic Years. He was um, he produced uh, The Last Waltz, the movie. And I, I think for Tacklin, and he articulates this in his book, The Magic Years. Rock and roll kind of ended with the last waltz or in the early 70s. How would you place Stevie Nicks in that context? One doesn't think of her in the same breath as, as Joni Mitchell. Is it because they're from another age? Is, is Nicks, and you mentioned the 70s or the later 70s a couple of times, was she in a sense unlucky to have missed the golden age or maybe lucky? Um, that is a terrific question. I guess I would say she was probably more lucky than unlucky because um, in that wonderful book, um, one of the arguments I think that's made about the end of rock and roll means that, you know, there were two lines of influence on rock and roll. One was um, a kind of, you know, Appalachian kind of country sound. And then there was this sort of blues influence. And that music had a political dimension to it. Uh, it was associated with protest. 
um, it was very real. And one of the things that uh, happened in the later 70s when you have these huge studios and these record labels putting out um, entertainment for all of America and, and other places so that the most, you know, the most important commodity wasn't going to the movies or uh, television series. It was actually getting, you know, whatever albums were released on Friday. I and mean, it's just a huge, huge business. And so that meant actually creating a sound that actually had broad appeal, which meant this kind of, you know, easy listening, that kind of stuff that the Eagles did once they sort of lost their country edge. And Fleetwood Mac comes along. And although I think musically they were a little bit more sophisticated than the Eagles, they were, you know, amenable to being actually packaged and polished and actually <clears throat> creating music that was this dreamscape. Her voice, um, you know, has a sort of edge to it, um, a sort of, um, yeah, sort of dustiness to it that is not that sort of smooth, easy sound. But nonetheless, um, the way it was harmonized and packaged, um, working with Lindsey Buckingham, I think it really um, accommodated what those studios wanted to do in the later 70s. And Fleetwood Mac, um, despite being initially a, you know, pseudo British blues ensemble, and this was before Stevie and Lindsey joined it, um, they were very amenable to actually becoming a commercial act. And so they just were looking for an identity and they found it within these studios and certain producers. And so Stevie Nicks, when she grew up, she was a fairly privileged kid. Uh, her father was a big time uh, executive in food and beverage and Greyhound, and they moved around a lot. And she was, I think, insulated a lot from what was going on in the 60s. So she wasn't tapped into it in a sort of way. When was she born? Um, uh, uh, Sorry. <laughs> she was born in 48. Yeah. So um, she lived through the certainly the late sixties, um, and what was her relationship with the glory years of the late sixties and early seventies? She hadn't quite made it as an artist yet. No, she was in. Um, she you know moved around a lot um, from Arizona. She was in New Mexico briefly, Utah, and then in California up and down because of her father's job. And she went to posh schools. Um, Vietnam was happening, you know, they were hearing about it, but she wasn't really responding to it. I think she had a pretty insulated upbringing, actually. And so um, the kind of she was just a little bit, I think, too young musically as well as experientially. And she wasn't on her own yet to actually really move into that space. Um, and so although she had this kind of Bay Area, California upbringing, it was still considerably sheltered compared to other artists at that time. But do you think her, her work ultimately reflected a, a post-60s aesthetic sensibility? I think that the I think that the she was curated. That is to say, her sound, a Fleetwood Max sound, was molded for a specific big label commercial identity. And I think she spent the decades after that actually reclaiming um so not she only was a kind of casualty then of of glam rock. Yeah, and say if you think of a casualty, um, as, you know, she became fabulously wealthy, you know, and um, a yeah. during that period in time. But in sense, in the sense of when people actually look at, you know, the the you know Dylan, Joni Mitchell, and the artists, you know, you're referencing or that song references by Dylan. Yeah, she didn't have that that edge and that dimension to her sound. But what I what I basically kind of signal in this book is that she reclaimed that. You know, she reclaimed her personal identity and an edge and things got more. Uh, she was more interested in, you know, craning a specific type, I think, of feminine identity contra a male dominated industry. And that actually is something that in the 80s and 90s, I think, rises to the fore. 
Uh, I certainly think John Taplin, who's a friend, is guilty of this, this sort of nostalgia for the 60s. A lot of us fall for that one, even myself, and I'm slightly younger than John. Uh, Ron Brownstein wrote a book, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, uh, suggesting that Los Angeles in 1974 was the cultural capital, the heart, the climax of the world. Do you think we've all exaggerated the, the, the cultural contribution, particularly in music terms, of the 60s and early 70s, Simon? I think that, um, you know, I do spend a lot of time in Los Angeles and I've kind of beat the paths and actually tried to revisit those places where a lot of that stuff happened. Los Angeles is, you know, it's a very transitional, transactional, deceptive place and it's very good about representing itself and marketing itself in a certain way. Obviously, Hollywood is based there. So I think that the cultural impact of the 60s and 70s is overhyped. Um, and I think Los Angeles is very good at, you know, promoting this, you know, image that it was itself this sort of American cultural identity. But if you actually subscribe to this sort of darker idea that a lot of American identity is about alienation, you know, and a sort of isolation and loneliness, Los Angeles as a place actually really supports that idea. But, um, you know, it was the center of the entertainment industry, obviously film and then music and then film again. Um, and so it was able to actually, it just had that force to actually impose itself on the rest of the country and frankly, the rest of the world in terms of putting out commercial entertainment. How much access did you have to Stevie Nicks for the book? Did you talk to her? What I did was I um, brought the book to the attention of various handlers in her. I wasn't going to write something that um, I knew would be a failure. That is to say, I wasn't trying to write her biography because I was fully aware of the fact that at one point, at some point soon, she's actually going to write an autobiography. So what I did was I um, drew it to her attention. Um, there was, you know, deep skepticism about an academic actually writing about it. And I said actually to her, to her people that um, what I was actually going to do is actually write something that was an appreciation more than anything else. And um, then um, rather than actually trying to dialogue with her directly, what I ended up doing is actually doing a lot of, a tremendous amount, actually, of research into her own past and actually sending that material her way. So it was the kind of opposite where I didn't, I knew it would be unsuccessful um, actually trying to um, interview her. And she put, she's put an awful lot of stuff out there on the record. And so what mm. my job was to do was actually to find out the reality and non-reality in some of her own statements. What do you think she's like as a person? Is she easy to talk to? Is she reclusive? Is she difficult? A lot of these people are tricky to deal with, perhaps because everybody wants to talk to them and tell them how wonderful they are. Um, there are, I mean, first, if you're doing a, a book about somebody's long career, there's the memory issue. So I don't, I don't think that she's somebody who... If, if you interviewed her, somebody's actually really interested in dwelling on her own past. She's more in the moment. Um, I know that she's somebody who um, has a very private existence with a sphere of people that have been around her for uh, decades in some instances, um, assistants that have been with her like seemingly forever. Um, it's a very close-knit circle. She keeps uh, the lid on, you know, um, what goes on in her life, you know, pretty tightly sealed. And one of the challenges I had in writing this book when I actually wanted to get to know like issues about why certain songs were, it's a strong word, but sort of censored or repressed or what happened in the studio and talking with the producers. Some of them were very close to her talking with lawyers and things like that for this book. I found autumn, there was an awful lot of uh, suspicion initially and I had to kind of try very hard to win people over by saying that 
you know, I wasn't writing some sort of, you know, piece of journalism, tabloid journalism, which some of that I enjoy, but I was actually just trying to find out like how great songs were made and, you know, what happened in the studio. So it took a while to actually chip away at that. And I think I was reasonably successful at that. Um, but there's, there's some paranoia. Um, and I think that if for somebody like her, having been battered over decades because of substance issues and so forth, um, really, you know, torn up in some... It's not way. unusual, though, in that sense. I mean, your book is called The, the Life and Music of Stevie Nicks. Um, did, has she had an interesting life? Or, I mean, is it really just a life of fame and too much drugs and too many sexual it's, affairs of one kind or another? It's a life that actually was one about... Um, having to outdo and be better than a lot of uh, the men surrounding her. It's, it's that mm. kind of politic. Um, it's an interesting life in the sense of uh, somebody who, as a superstar and an incredibly public figure who's traveled everywhere um, in you know, fabulous luxury at periods of time, also basically exists in her own imagination. You know, this very private life and you just turn inward. So her reading lists, the kinds of things that actually define her onstage persona reflect the fact that this is somebody who is very much enclosed in her own mind. I remember the last scene of The, the Last Waltz, John Taplin loves this moment when everybody comes back on stage. But one of the striking things is that, you know, Ronnie Hawkins and Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton and Neil Diamond and Doc, Dr. John and Van Morrison and Ringo Starr and Muddy Waters and Ronnie Ward were all on stage and there was only one woman, uh, uh, Joni Mitchell. Um, is or was uh, Stevie Nicks a strong feminist, both in her art and in her life? Uh, she's incredibly strong feminist. Um, this, she's surrounded by women who've been with her for, again, decades in some instances. Um, the songs that she's written, the lyrics, the, her interests, they resonate with teenage girls, girls in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, in a way that they don't uh, resonate with people like me. Um, I, I turned over some of this music to my 12-year-old daughter, and uh, it resonated with her, even though she's tuned into anime and all this other stuff, because it's, you know, she thinks of Stevie Nicks as still a kind of badass teenage girl. And teenage girls are badass, and I kind of respect that, and I sort of respect that um, boys are, you know, considered to be badass, and that's okay, and rock and roll has indulged that, and Led Zeppelin's fantasies are about teenage boys, and here you have a badass teenage girl, woman, Stevie Nicks, who actually um, gave voice to um, the imaginations to teenage girls and older women. And I think that I think that that's actually really an important aspect to her creativity. So I'd say she's a very strong feminist, yeah. I'm excited that you mentioned you thought she was going to write a, her own uh, autobiography. Again, not to keep on bringing up Bob Dylan, but his work, Chronicles, is a remarkable achievement. He won the Nobel Prize for it. It's so unusual and surprising on so many levels of course there are a number of classic rock autobiographies i think of uh, keith richard's life what would you expect her book to be like or what would you like her autobiography to be like what would you be wanting to read about from from uh, stevie given that you've covered her life and music um it won't be a, it won't be a narrative um i know that it won't be like i was born in this hospital and here mm -hmm. i am it's going to so be like chronicles in that sense yeah, I think it'll be heavily illustrated. I think it's going to have a lot of poetry in it. Um, she does a lot of uh, kind of creative writing. 
I think it's going to have a lot of her drawings in it. I think it's going to be a kind of omnibus collection of, you know, fragments of her personality in a way that's which far more just about her reinforcing this sort of mystic persona that she's generated. It's not going to be something that people are going to be able to pin her down very easily with. She may not want to be pinned down, but she's extremely political. She remains political. Uh, uh, She recently uh, urged fans and a new poem song to vote. Um, She did some other stuff uh, associated with uh, the Ukrainian uh, war, supporting uh, Ukraine with uh, Dave Stewart. How political is she and, and how important is politics in terms of evaluating her life and work? Um, she's become more political recently um, in these, you know, I'd say the last 10, 15 years. She was um, somebody who started visiting soldiers and you know, providing them with an iPod just during the Iraq war. And I think that what she's actually been able to do is to think of herself as somebody with a, a tremendous, you know, an enormous fan base, you know, as, and um, and actually things that she believes in in terms of women's rights and democracy, um, the Ukraine matter um, is to some degree not typical of her focus. She's she's generally people advertising about voters' rights and women's autonomy. So this this nastiness of this abortion, you know, prohibitions and things like that. I think it's for her uh, a monstrous development that she's. Uh, mobilizing her fan base to kind of resist by getting registered to vote and so forth. So it's become more and more the case. And I think she she's actually thinking about the people, the women in her life, her so-called goddaughters, people that she's brought into her fold, um, giving them um, some of the freedoms that she actually had when she was young, which are slowly being taken away. And I think that she's been a very strong advocate for you know a stronger women's presence in politics. You have some strong feelings on um, the Ukrainian war. Uh, uh, you've argued in a, a Washington Post piece that cancelling Russian artists plays into Putin's hands. You've written extensively on Russian music. You wrote a book about Bolshoi, uh, something um, about uh, Lena and Serge Prokofiev. Um, how concerned are you with the way in which culture has been so politicized that any time we want to take revenge on someone one way or the other. We ban them from performing or speaking or playing. You teach at Princeton, which is also quite controversial in that sense. Um, I think that culture, low, high, middle, has generally defined itself against tyranny and repression and um, the horrible things that people in autocracies and dictatorships do. Um, the history of Russian culture has been one of resistance. So uh, when you have this, uh, you know, this hideous monster uh, doing terrible things in, in the neighborhood, um, and you start canceling the people that you know are to some degree canceling themselves in protest or have been silenced or actually face wrath for actually speaking out, I don't see uh, particularly the value of that, especially since um, great Russian culture, 19th century. You think about Dostoevsky. Uh, you think about Paul Stoyer. I mean, these people were pacifists. Sometimes they were imprisoned. Uh, they were victims of censorship. And it's like, how do you actually, what kind of art can you create in incredibly repressive circumstances? And there's been case after case after case after case over the long and tortured history of Russia uh, of artists actually turning the worst of circumstances into creative gold. Uh, you you won a teaching award, a 
at Princeton. Uh, you're clearly beloved by your students. Um, are you concerned with the way in which students are, maybe not at Princeton, but elsewhere, broadly in America, are trying to control what should and shouldn't be said within the American university, musically or otherwise? I'm very concerned about that for the following reason, that there's um, obviously, as, we, as you know, uh, uh, truth is, is, um, is something that's traded back and forth and um, opinion seems to have replaced truth or polemic has seemed to replace truth. And uh, one of the things that I think young people, um, I don't know if they need it necessarily, but they certainly benefit from the idea of coming into a space where um, there's you know, a presence that actually can tell them something they can download or actually can actually, you know, carefully um, sort of filter through, you know, mistruths and lies and hypocrisies and all of that other stuff. So what I what I um, worry about is the idea that um, expertise or the sort of deep time that people put into certain subjects, that that's actually getting whisked away in favor of, you know, the idea that the classroom space should be reactionary and political in and of itself. And I think that, you know, you want a democratic environment, you want all voices to be heard, you know, you want um, all boundaries to be to some degree fluid. Um, but I think within the classroom space, um, it's, it's a good it's a good opportunity to clear out the noise and actually just consider something, you know, from, you know, as Joni Mitchell would say, both sides or all sides and actually, yeah, be the voice and be this, the place where a lot of the, the static is filtered out. So I, um, yeah, I, I really value the classroom space for that reason. Do you think the culture wars will eventually come to the music business? Uh, and I mean, Harvey Weinstein, of course um has become if, if it's the right word the, the poster child for every for all the injustices but we know that the world of the 60s and 70s in, in rock and roll was a very libertine place why mm -hmm. why hasn't it extended to that why aren't the the mick jaggers and the keith richards i mean dylan got accused of something and then it got forgotten what why hasn't it reached the music business is it because it was so consensual there's a lot of people. Um, I know a person named Pamela DeMar, DeBar, who is a super groupie who wrote a book about, you know, girl with the band or whatever, one of these kind of books. And she talked about the idea that, yeah, on one hand, she was she, you know, had a lot of affairs or slept around with a lot of these superstars. And you can see her as basically being somebody who was almost commodified and had this kind of, you know, was trafficked around in this hideous way. Uh, but yeah, she defends that experience and actually says, oh, no, no, I was the creative muse for a lot of these uh, rock and roll stars. So you do have people that are seemingly from our perspective, victims of it, actually defending you know, their own experiences. I think, though, that um, there's a lot of uh, with the popular music industry, you know, there's obviously the Michael Jackson case where, you know, to some degree, you know, there's a lot of people would like to see him canceled. Kanye West is going out there saying, wacky things and is in deep trouble for all of that so i think there are the extreme examples get noticed but now we're talking about the 60s and 70s which is a long time ago and buried in history um that the focus is really being on you know active artists um not the antiques roadshow and um, things like you know what is going on in opera you know and uh, these sort of misogynist representations or, or ballet likewise, or we're talking about racism and the sort of high arts. And then in, in, you know, in, in terms of people that are corporate movers and shakers in the present getting into trouble, they're the, they're the easier target. So we're not, it's, it's not so much the case that people are actually rummaging through history. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, 
looking at Mick Jagger and looking at, you know, other bands like that. There were some of the metal acts of the 80s and 70s and going through all of that. It doesn't seem, given their fan base, given the sort of record industry behind them, given their lawyers, that it's, uh, it's going to gain much traction. Well, you've done some rummaging into the life and music of Stevie Nicks. Congratulations on that for Mirror in the Sky. You're a remarkably eclectic writer, Simon. Everything from rock music to the Bolshoi to the Prokofievs to Stevie Nicks. In 50 years, how do you think music historians will remember Stevie Nicks? Will she be a footnote or will she have her own chapter in the history of rock and roll? Um, I think anybody who actually has as intensely passionate, devoted, obsessive a fan base as she does is actually somebody going to be remembered. And I think the fact that she sold her catalog for $100 million means that we're going to be with that music for a long, long time. So I don't think she's going to be forgotten. Uh, the name might slip away, but the music is going to be with us in all sorts of guises henceforth, I think. Well, congratulations on the book. Um, uh, you're, as I said, uh, I think you're a wonderfully valuable resource, someone able to, to write about so many different musical subjects and obviously a man who loves music more than anything else. You even were playing piano before this went, thing went live. Uh, what else do you read or listen to? What would you suggest for our audience? Simon. Um, well, I've been, I mean, it's a lot of the things I read I wouldn't suggest. <laughs> so um, I read, you know, Kim Gordon's book um, about um, Sonic Youth. Um, I think that's a terrific book. Um, a lot of it's about infidelity and you don't learn so much about the music, but it's a great book about um, the rock and roll business that she was in in the 80s primarily. Um, there's a book uh, that I just uh, read by Rupert Christensen about how ballet became ballet in the 20th century, um, which is a great, terrific read. Um, and um, so those two things are the most the things I've read most recently, and they're they're opposite, obviously. But um, for listeners of uh, people who are interested in, in rock and roll and popular music, I think that Kim Gordon memoir is terrific. Yeah. 